I didn't know a person who was facing significant injustice. I didn't know someone who was hungry. I didn't know someone who was a prostitute or a criminal or what you know whatever these people that I saw Jesus aligning himself with. And so as I did research, I asked the question, if Jesus lived in New York City today, where would he live? This is The Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they are led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just satisfied with improving themselves but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much somewhere you have arrived as a journey that you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. My guest on this episode is Sarah Miller, the executive director of A House on Beekman. They describe themselves as a nonprofit joining God in the renewal of the South Bronx. Sarah traveled from the South Bronx about 141st Street or so to our offices at 45th Street to talk with me. And as you'll hear, it's an amazing conversation about proximity, risk, and sacrifice, and why aiming to transform six city blocks is actually an insanely ambitious calling. So if you don't mind, let's actually start with that younger version of Sarah who somehow ends up knowing where Beekman, it's Avenue, right? Mm -hmm. Where Beekman Avenue is. Mm -hmm. And how did that happen? And what did you discover there? And how did you start to imagine a house on that avenue? (laughs) So it started when I was in college. I'm originally from Texas. I moved to New York to go to NYU theater school. And being away from the Bible Belt's very strong Christian community to New York City NYU Theater School was a huge culture shock and a huge culture shift. And so for the first time in my life, I was in a different way than I think even most college students are, having to figure out what does my faith mean for myself apart from my family and my church and my youth group and all of that. Because I literally didn't have one Christian friend for like a year, which was the opposite of my life in Texas. So I dug into scripture in those first couple of years more than I ever had before and turned to God in prayer as well. But through reading scripture, I read it in a new way, understanding God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. Hmm. And one specific thing turning point in my life was I read Isaiah 58 and God and the Israelites are sort of having a conversation. They're like, God, we worship you and we pray and we do all the right things. Why aren't you listening to us? And God says, you think bowing your head like a reed is worshiping me? No, worshiping me is loosening the chains of injustice and setting the oppressed free. It's inviting the stranger into your home. And he says, when you spend yourself on these things, 
then I will come behind you in a way that you never thought imaginable. And he spends the rest of the chapter making lavish promises. Like you will be like a spring whose waters never fail. He says, your name will be, you will be famous for rebuilding streets, dwellings, raising up age old foundations. And I remember walking on my way to church, tripped over a homeless person, kept walking because I was running late, slid into the pew. And then I realized it hit me like, God is talking about me. I am an Israelite. I go to church and I worship God. I'm a good girl. I do the right things. But this other list of things doesn't characterize my life at all. Maybe every once in a while on a mission trip or something like that. So that propelled me further into Scripture to ask really the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus fully with my whole life? What does it mean to fully surrender, fully dive in my whole self, my whole life, not kind of compartmentalize, okay, God, this is my part you know, I have these dreams of being a Broadway actress, whatever, and however you want to be involved, great. <laughs> Please come along. Right. <laughs> um, so in diving deeper into Scripture, that's when I really realized I could not separate a relationship with God and a life following God from a significant part of my life being with the marginalized of our society and the poor. Right. And I honestly just— didn't have those people groups as an intimate part of my life. I didn't know a person who was facing significant injustice. I didn't know someone who was hungry. I didn't know someone who was a prostitute or a criminal or what you know whatever these people that I saw Jesus aligning himself with. And so as I did research, I asked the question, if Jesus lived in New York City today, where would he live? Hmm. And as I kind of looked at the people groups that he spent time with and that type of thing, The South Bronx stood out as one of the highest, it had the highest rate of poverty. It has the most children. It has the highest crime rates. It has all of these different things. It is a place of significant racial tension. It's the place where people say, where people avoid going to this, especially this was 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. especially 10 years ago, people did everything they could to not go through the South Bronx or not go to the South Bronx. And that was the place I feel like Jesus would have put his stake in the ground and said, these are my people. This is where I want to be. These are the people that I love and place value on that the rest of society, literally, we throw our trash in the South Bronx, both literal physical trash, but also all the housing projects we put there, you know, all of those type of things. And Beekman Avenue is this little, a dead-end street on both sides. And so really the life of the community happens out on the street, on Beekman Avenue, because there's not a lot of cars that pass by there, that type of thing, because it's a dead-end street. And so, I mean, in the summer, there's hundreds of people just hanging out on Beekman Avenue. And so we moved right there. And yeah, that's how I landed there. So this is a beautiful response to God, but a lot of people, maybe especially today, would also feel some ambivalence and concern about a very uh, Mm well-intentioned white girl from Texas, I mean, young woman from Mm -hmm. Texas, moving into Mm -hmm. a neighborhood of color, of need, Mm -hmm. and it has elements of paternalism, Mm -hmm. uh, so forth. So how do you look back at you know, college-age Sarah mm-hmm. and that decision mm-hmm. in light of, I'm sure, what you now, all that you now know about yeah. the complexities right. of trying to make those connections. Right. Well, I would say a few things. Number one, I didn't move to the Bronx intending to start an organization 
or intending to start a nonprofit or start programs or to fix anyone or to save anyone. Hmm. What I saw in the model of Jesus is that he was just in relationship with people on the margins of society first and foremost and just showed up in relationship and said, I want to be your friend. I'm here. And so that was really the attitude that I came with wasn't, I'm going to come here and start all these things or I was still pursuing theater. I really, more than to, I'm doing air quotes, fix (laughs) or save anyone, it was myself that I was moving there to, for God to work on because I had had that encounter with Isaiah 58 and the realization that I came to was, I'm doing something wrong. I'm walking in, I'm being disobedient to God by this not being a part of my life. But then number two, and this is really important to me, to give so much credit to the people of the South Bronx. I was by no means perfect, but from the beginning, the people of the South Bronx loved and welcomed me and invited me into their lives. And everyone else from the outside was scared for me, encouraging me to fear, saying, you know, don't let strangers into your home. Don't be outside after dark, What all these things. That was all from the outside. From the inside, once I, you know, when I lived there, everyone was so welcoming, so wonderful, just invited me to their house for holidays and meals and took care of me. I was 20 years old or 19, 19, 20. And so I was still a young girl who was 2,000 miles away from her mom and still wanted her mom. And so the (laughs) moms of the neighborhood really took me in and loved me. And so the people of the South Bronx were just incredible, loving, filled with grace. I'm sure I said and did things that I don't even know about that were hurtful and harmful. And that really didn't even come into my consciousness until several years later And part of that was because no one from the neighborhood ever made me feel like an outsider or they didn't question my intentions in an attacking way. Mm. It it was more, I mean, people ask me all the time. The major question that I got was, what are you doing here? Because (laughs) no one chooses, especially 10 years ago, no one chooses to move to the South Bronx. You're placed there because of Section 8 or housing. So people were curious, but not defensive or you shouldn't be here. Again, I didn't start any programs. I didn't do anything. I wasn't even intending to at that point. I just participated in the life of the neighborhood and I wasn't trying to kind of place my culture on top of their culture. I was coming in under their culture. So for example, I said, I spoke earlier about Bigman Avenue is just full of people in the summer, especially dancing, like music blasting, all hours of the night. (laughs) And so instead of either just staying in my house or being annoyed that I couldn't sleep because the music was loud, I went outside and enjoyed the party (laughs) and danced in the street until 2 a.m. And number one, my neighbors lovingly welcomed me into that. But number two, I participated in that and didn't try and, yeah, I I just kind of came under the cultural norms of the neighborhood and the way that the neighborhood operated. So I think that was really important for building trust. So let's talk about then, uh, you've been living in the neighborhood for a few years, Mm -hmm. you're enjoying the street parties, (laughs) uh, 
And then you start to imagine that there should be an organization. Mm -hmm. And how did that happen? Yeah. What were a couple of the moments when that Mm -hmm. came alive for you? Yeah. So I moved there before my junior year of college. So I finished school and then I worked a job in the city for a year. And all of my there were other people from college who'd moved up along the way, and they all moved out when we all graduated. Oh, sure. And so I was back by myself in the house and kind of had a... By the way, when we moved to Beekman Avenue, there's a house there. Huh. And so we moved into a house, a house. on Beekman Avenue. Yes. <laughs> um, but so I was by myself again there and had yeah been living in the neighborhood for three years, really understood or was... I mean, I will never fully understand, but began to understand deeper the needs of the neighborhood and was in deep relationship with people from the neighborhood at this point. And I really was coming to an understanding of the depth of my own privilege as well, Mm -hmm. things that I just completely took for granted, like my public education growing up was amazing public mm. schools in you know upper middle class suburban texas are amazing and incredible and then i got to go to nyu for college and it was never a question that i would go to college and that i would pursue whatever i wanted to pursue in college that i had that choice yeah. and at the same time i had these friends who were moms who when i would ask them about their dreams for their kids their biggest dream was, I want my kid to have a career, mm. just like mm. a career. And that wow. was like a huge far-fetched dream, which to me was like, of course, everyone has a career. Of course, you can have a career and it can be whatever you want it to be. And so little things like that, I mean, those are big things, but to me, it's that those were things that I had just 100% taken for granted. And there were a million of those things. And so I just realized how much the deck had been stacked in my favor. And I felt like I had a choice that I could use that to further my own career and my own dreams and do whatever I wanted or while still living in the South Bronx and whatever. (laughs) Or I could steward all of that on behalf of advancing the kingdom of God in the South Bronx with my whole life and my whole self and all of my gifts and intellect and privilege and all of it. And when I thought of it that way, it was kind of a (laughs) no-brainer because that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is to steward every single thing that we have. So I quit my job that I was working and knew that I was going to start an organization. And that was the first time that I ever thought, oh, I'm going to start an organization. Again, before then, I was still, I wanted to do something with theater. I wanted to do my own things. So let's talk about building something that can get to that scale. So mm-hmm. like at one end is a a wonderful, organic, relational after-school program in, in your mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. At the other end is ultimately an organization that will serve kids from birth to career. Mm-hmm. And that's many different kinds of programs. Many actually different kinds of staff mm-hmm. need to be involved mm-hmm. in that. And so what has it been like with your extensive training from theater school to build <laughs> that kind of organization? <laughs> so we are a service-providing organization. And one of the most important things is 
for the work that we do is that there are consistent people in the lives of mm. our kids. And so we can't just kind of run off of volunteers who are in and out all the time. That really wouldn't work. And so that's one of the biggest pieces. And then that kind of has been my biggest focus up until this point is how can I raise the money that we need to pay the people that we need to really do these programs well. Huh. I think where I'm shifting now is thinking about space. So we are growing so much so quickly every year. And so we're outgrowing every space that we have really quickly. And there are a lot of conditions around, especially with preschool, with young mm. kids, right exactly what type of space you can have. And our neighborhood is pretty residential. There's not a ton of commercial space. So thinking through what type of space do we need today? What type of space do we need next year? What type of space do we need five years from now? What type of space do we need 10 years from now? Hmm. And how do we procure those spaces and have the money to do that because that's a whole different animal. I mean, it's one yeah. thing if we're, you know, just paying rent right now in these spaces, but if I'm really thinking about the long-term flourishing of a house on Beekman and the way that New York City real estate is going, and it particularly in the South Bronx, there's a lot of talk right now about gentrification because of our yeah. proximity to the city. And so as there's kind of a threat to not just rent, but the price of property rising right. really quickly. Thinking through those things are like, what's on my to-do list today <laughs> is thinking through those things. But you say that with, it sounds like more anticipation than dread. Like you said, you, oh, yeah, you light up when you say that. What a fun challenge. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a seemingly impossible task, so... <laughs> Let's Perfect. go for it. <laughs> so I just want to observe that I wonder where this very high tolerance for risk came from. Because <laughs> halfway through college, you moved to the South Bronx. Then you're working a job and you have this kind of dawning realization, I want to spend my whole life on this community, my everything I've been given. And you quit your job first and then start doing something. <laughs> a lot of people would like have the next thing lined up. Right. Uh, where does that risk capacity come from, do you think? Where did that start in your life? <laughs> You're not normal, is yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I think that the true piece under it is that I think that Jesus was a huge risk taker. And as I read scripture, I mean, that's what first propelled me to move to the South Bronx was Jesus and uh. scripture. And I think I do remember having to kind of come to terms with, because I was experiencing a lot of pushback from a lot of people, a lot of Christians. And so, and I don't love to rock the boat. And in some ways I am a people pleaser, but I have always been very sure that my first allegiance is to Jesus. And that has been a theme through my entire life. And so when wow. in some cases I may be a little more risk averse when it comes to a choice between doing what I know God has asked me to do huh. and not, then that's a place where I'm willing to take every risk that exists. That's <laughs> so good. Uh, and I do think that year of 
in some ways having nothing but the Bible and taking mm-hmm. it that seriously, like that's a very rare thing. Mm-hmm. In a way, you are very displaced. Like I think a lot of what keeps us from risk in a way is sort of the grooves we're in mm-hmm. that are m- mediated through culture, through mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. in a more Christian kind of environment like Texas, let's say, like that can be very much just a safety net mm-hmm. that keeps you in a certain orientation and you being displaced from that, having this profound encounter with God mm-hmm. as revealed in the Bible with Jesus is actually something many, many people who are, would consider themselves very faithful Christians mm-hmm. never actually have mm-hmm. that depth of encounter mm-hmm. with, okay, who is this God mm-hmm. actually? And who is his son? And what does it mean to follow his son? Yeah. So there was something very formative about that. Yeah. I tell people that obviously I don't recommend it long-term because we're made to be in community and I don't think God endorses like life without community. But for me, that year was so crucial to my relationship with God. And so I think for a season, it can be extremely valuable to kind of strip away every other thing except God and prayer and scripture and yeah, I don't know where I would be in life if I hadn't been kind of forced into that. Well, Jesus comes of age and goes into the desert for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And all he, ha- I mean, the only words recorded from him during that time when he's tempted are words from scripture. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's there is something True. about that solitude, withdrawal, mm-hmm. desert, deserted. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the very first moments of starting something bigger than yourself, let's say, and what that involved. Okay. So there were a couple of pieces to it, kind of the program side of it and the back end side of it. The program side of it was really pretty easy because it was already organically happening. So part of the need to start an organization is that I kind of realized one day I'm basically I already have an after school program because there are 15 <laughs> kids who come over to my house every day after school right. and I feed them snacks and we do homework together and we read the bible together and you know that's an after school program right and I already have a group of friends who are women who are pregnant and we started our we called it at first mommy and me and now we call it babies to 3 program from that, just from that kind of support group of women. And so we really just looked at what's organically already happening and put some structure behind it. And then the other part that was really different from what had been happening so far was I needed to raise money. And so Hmm. actually John Tyson at Trinity Grace Church, that's where I was going to church. And he made a video for me. Trinity Grace made a video for me to raise money. And so I started that part was kind of the new part. Hmm. But at the same time, I was a college student who was living off of nothing. So I was used to having to make a lot work with nothing. The South Bronx is really good at that too. Our community is really good at that. We don't need a lot of fluff or flash to make things work. Yeah, it strikes me in an environment of so many different dimensions of 
need an opportunity to serve in a way. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the mirror image in a way of all those different cards in your deck that had been stacked so favorably mm-hmm. for you. Like, mm-hmm. so, like at least 52 cards mm-hmm. <laughs> for maybe the median person in the South Bronx need mm-hmm. to be rearranged. Mm-hmm. And so organic responses can also end up very diffuse. Like there's mm-hmm. so many things to do. Like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I need help over here. Mm-hmm. And so in a way you had to choose a few mm-hmm. things. And right. why did you choose the few things that you started with or still really focus on? Yeah. So there was really one big choice that I felt like I had to make. And one was I looked at the people who I was really close with. And there was a bunch of kids that I was really close with. A bunch of kids were just... Like I said, coming over to my house every day after school, we were, you know, taking trips downtown together. And I was doing life with a lot of these kids. I saw an opportunity to actually break cycles before they started in a new person's life. I asked dads and moms in our neighborhood. They would say, and I mean, and I did, and they did say, I care most about my kids, invest Uh, in my kids. uh. And... That's what I want now is to see my kids have a better life. So give us the chronology. So when did you start adding that structure? When did this become a thing that people could legally give money to? Mm -hmm. What year was that? And give us a quick summary of what's happened since then, just in terms of the organization. Right. Okay. So I quit my job in 2011 We started, our very first program was then Mommy and Me, now called Babies to Three. And then the next year, we started an after-school program. And so in 2012, we officially incorporated and came a nonprofit. And then this is where the mission and the model of the House on Beekman comes into play. So our mission is to come alongside the next generation of the South Bronx from birth to career, to entry Mm. into their career. And so we are building a seamless series of programs from birth to career to empower the next generation to reach their full potential. And so we started with a group of unborn babies in our very first mommy and me class, four pregnant women in an abandoned church at the end of Beekman Avenue. And then the next year we started with kindergartners, well, with, with a group of young elementary school students. And those are the cohorts that were following those kids throughout their Mm. life. Mm. So when the cohort of unborn babies turned three, we started a preschool for them because (laughs) that was a need. And so then we followed them through preschool and then they went into our after-school program, which already existed. And then last year, our original cohort of after-school kids were graduating from fifth grade. Right. And so we started a middle school program middle to, school. Follow, yeah, to follow <laughs> those kids. That was last year we started the middle school program. And right. then we'll continue to follow those kids as they grow through high school and then college support and then entry into a career. In many of your materials and the way you describe <laughs> your mission, you say a six-block radius mm-hmm. along Beekman Avenue, I mm-hmm. guess. That's not very much of the South Bronx. What are you not ambitious? Like, why not 16 <laughs> blocks? I mean, why not all of New York City? Like, it's such a small, it sounds really small, right. but maybe it's not really small. And why is that important? Yeah, there are tens of thousands of people who live within that six block radius. <laughs> but so it's not that small. But one of the things that I've known since day one 
this was part of the strategy when I was trying to put structure to what Hassan Beekman would become and thinking through where are we going? What are we holding ourselves accountable to? What do we want to accomplish here? And one thing that was really important is that I did not want to create a pipeline out of the South Bronx. Hmm. I wanted to see this community thrive and be able to stay right where they are and see kingdom flourishing happening in every way. And one thing I heard all the time when I was listening to the community in the beginning was, if you have the chance to get out, you get out. Mm. And that's what success is, is leaving the neighborhood. That's Uh the definition of success for most of my neighbors, what they were telling me. And it's not because they don't love their community. There's so much beauty and richness there. And so how can we keep all of the beautiful parts of the culture of the South Bronx, but change the things that aren't working for the people there? Yeah. The education system and the economic system of you know, people not being able to get jobs and you know housing and all of that. And so, you know, if we served one kid from this block, one kid from 20 yeah. blocks north, one kid from Washington Heights, one kid from wherever, then we would be creating a pipeline for those kids to get out of their neighborhoods. But if we could serve, I think Malcolm Gladwell says like 15%, if we could serve 15% of kids in our neighborhood and really, and, and for them to be change makers, culture makers in the South Bronx, then we could see the entire community change and flourish in a different way. So I actually think that's a much bigger dream because it's seeing an entire community go from the poorest congressional district, the poorest neighborhood in America, the lowest performing school district in New York City, to see those things 100% change and to see the cycles of those kids in that community break forever, for generations to come. That's what we're trying to do at House on Beekman. And so if we focus on this particular six-block radius, that is one culture. Yes. That is one community. Oh, I love it. I just think it's very profound that this is actually a bigger vision than kind of Taking advantage of scale, which, by the way, is something that only people with certain kinds of privilege can even do, just Mm -hmm. sort of surf across a huge geographic area Mm -hmm. and kind of cherry pick, you know, promising opportunities Mm -hmm. or whatever, and then talk about the scale of your operation. Like, that is actually easier, but also less, in the long run, less impact, Mm -hmm. less real transformation than committing to a place and a people and asking, could we get to the 15% point in this uh, still very complex? Yeah, and that goes back to, that's what my neighbors were asking for. They were asking for a generational change. They were asking for these cycles to be broken forever, for their kids to have something completely different. And then that's going to affect their grandkids and their great-grandkids and their great-grandkids. And so that's what we're trying to do. You're early in this story still. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of change you're looking for is, I always think about it being in a minimum of three generations, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, real change Mm -hmm. is to the children's children. Right. And you're not there yet. The children are starting middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm wondering what you've seen 
what signs you see that something is going right and that this is indeed worth worth doing? Yeah, so I see a ton of incredible little and big moments every day of our kids and our families experiencing a flourishing where there wasn't that before. So some of the things that are coming to my mind right now is in our early education programs, so like particularly our preschool, is a hugely important time in a child's life. So the first actually three to five years of a child's life are the most important time for them developmentally. There are brain connections that happen or don't happen during that time that are shape you for the rest of your life. And there are the majority of our kids face some type of significant trauma before the age of five. Mm. And that shapes them emotionally. It shapes their physical brain development. Yeah. Trauma does in, yeah. in young people. And mm. so our preschool is really focused on coming around those traumas and working through those with our kids and their families. And so thinking through a kid who his father has recently been incarcerated, for example, it's, that would be one example of a significant trauma that is common in our neighborhood. And so that kid is facing all sorts of emotions. My dad was present in my life. He was a great father. I loved him. And now he's not here anymore. And I'm angry about that. And it's affecting my psyche. And I don't know how to deal with all of these emotions that I'm feeling. So he comes to preschool and starts lashing out because I don't know how to, another way to deal with my anger. I'm a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just want to kick and mm. throw things. And um, so then our teachers come alongside that kid and teach them safe ways to deal with their anger. Mm. Yes, of course you feel angry. It's totally fine to feel angry. Mm. I would feel angry too, but we have to do it in a way that's safe for all of our friends here. And so what could we do that's safe? And then the kid says, well, I just want to, you know, kick something. Okay, well, how about we, how about we stomp? Do you think if you stomped, that would work? So let's come over to the corner and let's just stomp until you stomp your anger out. And so the kid and the teacher goes into the corner and they just stomp and stomp and stomp. And then the kid feels better mm. and he's able to rejoin the group. Mm. And then over the course of this does not happen over overnight, but over the course of the year, by the end of the year, that kid, when he feels anger rise up inside of him, goes mm. to the teacher and says, I need to go to the corner and stomp. And so he by himself goes to the corner and stomps until he can rejoin the group. Mm. That is an incredibly profound skill for a three-year-old wow. to learn. Wow. And that's going to make a huge difference in his life, not only then, but then when he goes to his kindergarten classroom and there's a kindergarten teacher with 30 kids who are all over the map developmentally, and this kid, who would have maybe been one who would have been disrupting that class, can now go to that kindergarten teacher and say, I'm feeling angry. I need to go to the corner and spend a moment by myself. Mm. That's going to be a huge game changer for him in that kindergarten class. 
through all of elementary school. Then think about that kid when he's a teenager and he gets angry. He knows how to deal with his emotions. He's probably not still stomping it out in the corner, (laughs) but he's elevated that into a way that makes sense for him as a teenager. Then he's a 20-year-old. He has his first job and his boss tells him something that he doesn't want to hear and he can respond to it in a way that is appropriate because he knows how to manage his own feelings. And from three years old, he's known, number one, it's okay to have feelings. But number two, I know how to control them and I know how to manage them in a way that is good for everyone else around me. So those are some small, beautiful things that I see just the ripple effects of Uh, in the rest of their lives. uh, We talk about restoration through sacrifice. And as I talk with you, you exude joy, gratitude, optimism, as you said, that's kind of one of your traits in a way, probably wired into you from day zero or minus something. (laughs) And I don't feel like I'm sitting across from someone who comes across as someone who thinks they've made a lot of sacrifices Mm -hmm. in one sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, it doesn't feel heavy. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you think about that. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, from a certain external perspective, one might say, you know, this is someone who's made a lot of sacrifices. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be how you wear it or bear it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But has, has there been, and if there has been, what has been the nature of sacrifice for you in Mm -hmm. this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right in that a lot of, in general, it doesn't feel like sacrifice to me. And I think part of that is, I think about the passage where God says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give the desires of your heart. I think when I used to think about that passage, it's like, okay, delight myself in the Lord and I'll be a Broadway actress. (laughs) But (laughs) I think God has changed the desires of my heart to align with the desires of his heart. And the desires of his heart are wrapped up in the flourishing of the people of the South Bronx. And so mine are now too. So any of the kind of material sacrifices that may look from like externally that I've made, like living in the South Bronx, We live in a food desert. I go to the grocery store and there's expired meat with a manager special sticker over the expiration date. There's no produce in the produce section. There's, when I was living at the house on Beekman, for sure, our house was infested with mice and roaches. And every time it rained, the ceiling leaked. And these are all things that one might consider a sacrifice. Number one that I don't necessarily feel those sacrifices on a regular basis. Number one, because this is the life of my neighbors. And Mm. so who am I to Mm. feel this as a sacrifice when that is my privilege talking Mm. there? When I'm like, Mm. woe is me, I live in a house with mice. Like, welcome to the thousands of people who have no other option but to live in this housing. So that kind of got over that pretty quickly and actually found a deeper solidarity there that I think that's why it's so important for me to live in the neighborhood. And I think the example of Jesus is to like take on our plight, take on what we are facing. And so I think that 
I and we are called to do the same. But ways that I have felt sacrifice, I mean, it's, there's definitely been, it's definitely hard. There's definitely hard days to it. There's definitely, I'd say the hardest days are the moments of where the need and the pain and the injustice is so overwhelming that it's just feels dark and hard. Again, though, I I don't know that I would call that a sacrifice because that's more just feeling my heart being heavy the way that God's heart is heavy over those things. I would say, so the example with a kid facing trauma, I think in order for that moment of renewal to happen, everyone is sacrificing. I think the kid is sacrificing. The kid is Mm. settling deep into pushing into the hard work of processing his emotions. And that is hard work. The teacher is sacrificing what's probably an easier route to make that deep work happen. And I remember the first day that we had a threes program, the teachers at the end of the day for like the first two weeks were just crying Uh every day Uh because it was so hard because that moment of... Um, teacher, I need to go to the corner to stop. Hasn't hadn't happened yes, yet. Yes, right, right. And um, <laughs> so that work was is so so difficult to push mm. through when you're not seeing the fruit yet. To push through that moment, to sit with those kids in that pain, and to push them to something else that takes days of really, really, really hard work. Then as the managers, seeing our teachers have those hard moments and cry every day at the end of the other job. No manager wants their wants their employee to cry for two weeks straight at the end of every day. But knowing that there's no other way to do that work than straight through the pain of it and the hardness of it. Mm. And so to sit there and support and come around our employees when it's really hard for them, but not compromising on the hard work that needs to be done. And then the parent who has also known that, you know, they are in this place where their own kid has been exposed to trauma Mm. and coming to us in a place where they can be vulnerable in front of us, that's incredibly hard work. That's a huge sacrifice to be able to come to your Mm. child's school Mm. and be vulnerable with what you might see as your own Mm. huge monumental parental failings because your child has been exposed to this trauma and be open with that and vulnerable with that. And then in a culture that in a lot of times kind of is a toughen up type of culture to enter into how can I not the quick fix of just saying, you know, kid, be quiet. Just fix it. Just get under control. And the easy way of making a child come under your will in that way, but being willing to dig into as a parent, all your own personal stuff that's then, you know, coming into the life of your child. That's a huge sacrifice. Sarah Miller. That is very, very profound. That what has to happen is a whole community has to come together and bear pain. And maybe it's only when that happens that the pain actually becomes bearable. And as that's sustained in obedience to God, it actually becomes joy. 
I am so struck by that image of the child having to bear it, the teacher having to bear it, managers and leaders and the family who have to bear it. And maybe if we don't bear it in that way, we'll bear it in another way that will just destroy rather than restore. It comes down to what we're willing to bear together. If you want to know more about Sarah Miller and A House on Beekman, check out their website, ahouseonbeekman.org, all one word, ahouseonbeekman, B-E-E-K-M-A-N.org. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org, praxislabs, all one word, dot org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That's one of the best ways to help other people find the show. And we'd also like to address your questions. We're actually building a whole bonus episode just based on your questions. You can leave those in your review, or you can visit us at podcast.praxislabs.org. Leave your questions, your comments there, and pick up show notes and transcripts there as well. The Redemptive Edge is produced by the amazing Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production from Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. We're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Redemptive Edge.